Welcome to Wizard Studies. Join us as we peruse all things Potter. Hello, and welcome to Wizard Studies. I'm Katie. And I'm Audrey. And today we're talking about Neville Longbottom, thus completing the four most important Gryffindor <laughs> boys in Hermione Granger's year. <laughs> uh, we're never going to talk about Harry. Yeah, this is a Harry Potter podcast, but don't hold your breath for our Harry episode. We do have notes on him, though. We do. We have half-completed notes on Harry. <laughs> it would be a long one. It'll be our, our final episode. Yeah, We won't tell we anyone, and then song. we'll release Harry, and then just be done. <laughs> it's our swan song. I've been re-watching Parks and Rec, and so I'm singing the swan song song That's in my head right now. Great. great but I'm song. not singing it out loud because people's ears (laughs) you're welcome so neville longbottom (laughs) his name is neville longbottom and (laughs) his first name neville is an english name derived from norman french for new town it's also the surname of the noble and powerful warrior lineage in medieval england so He's a warrior. And it was the first name of British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, who was pretty infamous because he appeased Hitler before World War II. So, some good company, some bad company in the name Neville there. Take with that. Take that as you will. And then a long bottom is a family name that is common around Bristol, which is where JK grew up for a little bit. So that's probably where she came up with it. It's also the name of a hobbit's village. Um, so she could have maybe drew, drawn some inspiration from the Lord of the Rings series as well. I am a Lord of the Rings fan, so... I never never read them, never watched them. I have never read them. I've listened... I've read The Hobbit, and I've listened to... I think most of the three books, but they're just really boring. The movies are better. <laughs> Yikes. Neville's birthday is July 30th, 1980. Happy birthday, Neville! Woo woo! He is 39 today. So On the day of birthday. release, not the day of recording. Yes, today. <laughs> as in July 30th. If you're listening to this the day it's released. <laughs> okay. His wand, his first wand, was inherited from his father, which, as we see with inherited wands with Ron, is kind of trash because you, the wand chooses the wizard, so you're never going to be very good at magic with not your own wand. And his second wand was 13 inches cherry unicorn hair. I don't know why I said was. He's not dead. Um, (laughs) As far as we know. So he got his second wand after his first wand was broken in the Battle of the Department of Mysteries. And that was kind of when his grandmother decided that she was proud enough of him to buy him a wand. Also, she like needed to buy him a wand because he broke his first. And that could kind of explain why Neville's not great at magic the first four or five years and then he kind of comes into his own probably because he has his own want anyway um i think we've talked both about cherry wood and unicorn hair before cherry wood is supposed to be very rare but it's very highly prized by the wizarding students in japan and honestly i didn't really see cherry wood fitting Neville that much. Um, a lot of it says that a lot of Western wand purchasers think that the cherry wood is supposed to be like ornamental wand, but that's not the case. In fact, cherry wood possesses truly lethal power. But I don't like Neville wasn't a particularly lethal person. Isn't cherry wood the wand for Lockhart? Did yes. we talk about him? Okay. I think so. It's also my mom's wand wood. Fun fact. Oh, shout out to Katie's mom. And then, so he has unicorn hair with the cherry wood, and 
it's interesting because unicorn hair is supposed to be the most consistent magic. And in fact, Neville, we know, is notoriously not very consistent. He is actually subject to fluctuations and blockages in his magic, whereas unicorn hair is supposed to be the least subject to that. So not a great fit with that, I think, for Neville's wand, but we do see that he comes into his own more once he has that wand. Neville's house is Gryffindor, as we mentioned in the introduction to this episode, and we're going to talk a little bit more about how he fits into the Gryffindor house later in the episode. Neville's parents were Frank and are Frank and Alice Longbottom. I keep using the past tense. His parents are Frank and Alice Longbottom. And of course, we know that they are both in St. Mungo's after having been tortured. But so he was raised by predominantly by his grandmother, Augusta Longbottom. And his skills listed on Pottermore are, I never know how to say this because it's always skills, but if it's just one, I don't say like his skills are herbology, like his skill is herbology as listed on his Pottermore profile. And then going along with that, his hobby listed on Pottermore is breeding Mimbulus Mimbletonia, which is always a mouthful. I feel like they just have the weirdest hobbies on there for these characters. It's like they're very specific things that they mention like once in the series and yeah. that's like their hobby on like Dumbledore one. with the like chamber music oh yeah but like for instance like Dean's makes sense because it was like supporting West Ham United which is something yeah. you see throughout but then there are random yeah. characters that just have like really weird things yeah Anyways, moving on to his first mention. So we first hear Neville's name in the Sorcerer's Stone. This is when Harry first gets onto platform nine and three quarters. So here's the quote. Harry pushed his cart off down the platform in search of an empty seat. He passed a round-faced boy who was saying, Grant, I've lost my toad again. Oh, Neville, he heard the old woman say. So this introduction to Neville and subsequently him basically through like, the first one to two books is him just this like kind of chubby guy who is always losing and down on his luck like the famous quote from him the mo- him in the movie why is it always me just kind of this not troubled character but just this character who can never catch a break and we see this later on with every time he's mentioned until like the sorting is like, oh, Neville, the boy who can't find his toad. There's that boy who can't find his toad. Like Harry refers to him as that. And it's kind of sad. But Neville does have one of the best character arcs, I think, in like all of literature. Yeah. Just very good. I would agree. Also, one of the best glow ups. Yes, a long. I love that long. I was gonna talk about this, and I didn't really have a place in, but I wanted to mention this. Like long bottoming being like a thing, yeah, is hilarious to me. And Matthew Lewis is like such a sweet guy. There, he's lost two. I think he was like lost his wallet and something else at some oh, point. Oh yeah, he'll, like post on Twitter like, "Hey, I lost this. Can you help people help me find it?" And just this really wholesome guy. And he married a worker from Universal Studios, which is just like, can you imagine so being a Harry Potter fan, getting a job, working at Hogwarts, and then like marrying the guy who played Neville? The, like, like the guy who is infamous for getting the hottest. Yeah. Man, he's a great <laughs> dude. And he was tweeting during the Women's World Cup about like cheering yeah. for England. Just a good guy. Yeah. Anyway... <laughs> So, Neville's personality type is ISFJ, the Defender. Coming at you, the best personality type ever. This is my personality type, and I love it. So, if you know me and you listen to this section, think about if it fits me. (laughs) Also Neville, though. I think this is one that I've gotten. Like, I've gotten three throughout my time, like, taking Mm. personality quizzes, and the one that is Lily is one of them who is also Cedric I think uh, that's like it's close to this it's a, it's yeah. ESFJ and then I it's think or ESFP this one and it's I'm not gonna tell you who the third one is because I'm so ashamed. wait what's the second one this one. Oh right what's the third one it's the one that Snape is oh I got that one time and was like 
rewind the tape that never happened erasing that from my memory and then I took it again and got this one so I've gotten like the one that Lily is and Cedric I believe was like my first one that I had for a while and then I retook it and got Snape and was like instantly redo redo kind of redo it and then got this one so well it's my personality type (laughs) so the defender personality type is supposed to be quite unique because many of their qualities defy the definition of their individual trait. Though sensitive defenders have excellent analytical abilities. Though reserved, they have well-developed people skills and robust social relationships. And though they they are generally a conservative type, defenders are often receptive to change and new ideas. As with so many things, people with defender personality types are more than the sum of their parts. And it is the way they use these strengths that defines who they are. So I really liked that first line about their qualities kind of defying the definition of their individual traits because Neville is pretty shy and reserved, at least at the beginning, but he also, as like a kind of characteristic Gryffindor, is really brave and grows into this like leadership role that you never would have imagined him having when he first came to Hogwarts and like Katie said, was losing his toad and was like kind of like a bumbling little little dweeby boy (laughs) and then he's one of the first to jump on board fully with Dumbledore's army so that kind of shows the part about being receptive to new ideas he's always totally believes whatever Harry's saying and is okay with the change there's hardly a better type to make up such a large proportion of the population nearly 13 percent combining the best tradition and the desire to do good Defenders are found in lines of work with a sense of history behind them, such as medicine, academics, and charitable social work. Two things from that, desire to do good, I feel like is totally Neville. Like, I think he just wants to make the world a better place. And we know that he does end up going into academics and being a professor. So there you go, his line of work. It's his personality type, which is always exciting when we find that in characters. Defender personalities are often meticulous to the point of perfectionism, and though they procrastinate, they can always be relied on to get the job done on time. Defenders take their responsibilities personally, consistently consistently going above and beyond, doing everything they can to exceed expectations and delight others at work and at home. So, although Neville doesn't really procrastinate when he knows that he needs to kill Nagini, he does get the job done. I mean, he doesn't procrastinate because he does it as soon as he possibly can. And he learns an hour before, if that. But... Yeah. To be fair, this is also not getting your, like, paper done the week before. Helping defeating an imminent threat. Exactly. But I just liked the line, regardless of the procrastination thing, it is they can always be relied on to get the job done because... Who does Harry turn to after after the trio, knowing it to, that they need to kill Nagini? He, I mean, part of it is probably circumstance and that he has the opportunity to talk to Neville, but I think he trusts that Neville is going to do that. So I like that, like, he's a reliable person. And we see this, I think, with, and I mean, I know this is a movieism, but in the Goblet of Fire movie, he's the one to give Harry the gillyweed, which I know Dobby gives it to him in the book, but... That's also kind of part of how we interpret his character is also blended in with what we see in the movie, even though we try to stick to canon. And then the last line about going above and beyond and doing everything to exceed expectations and delight others, I think could be seen in him really taking the charge and leading the charge at Hogwarts in book seven, which of course we don't get to see, but we hear about. And he just really does everything he can in that book with the absence of the trio at Hogwarts to lead the fight against the Caros. And I think it's really admirable that he would continue to do that even when no one asked him to do that, you know, but he's like protecting the younger students and doing the best he can. The challenge for defenders is ensuring that what they do is noticed. They have a tendency to underplay their accomplishments, and while their kindness is often respected, more cynical and selfish people are likely to take advantage of defenders' dedication and humbleness by pushing work onto them and then taking the credit. Defenders need to know when to say no and stand up for themselves if they are to maintain their confidence and enthusiasm. So I think we start to see Neville come into his own when he 
stands up for himself more. When he chooses to stand up for himself, he becomes more confident and less people are able to walk all over him. And I know that this kind of is, it's a growing thing over the series for him. I don't really know that we could pinpoint one exact point, maybe some point during Order of the Phoenix, um, maybe him deciding to fight in the department, the Battle of the Department of Mysteries. But also this kind of reminded me how important it was for his development for Dumbledore to recognize him at the end of Sorcerer's Stone for standing up for himself and not letting someone walk all over him. Because like I just said, um, defenders often tend to underplay their accomplishments. And so I think Neville could have totally been forgotten in that act when he stood up to the trio um, and told them not to go go out after hours. But with Dumbledore giving him the 10 points and really making it his victory for the House Cup, I think that was probably really important for his development like as a young kid. Yeah, for sure. And then just to kind of wrap this up, the strengths and weaknesses. So for strengths, they're supportive, reliable and patient, imaginative and observant, enthusiastic, loyal and hardworking, good practical skills. I think pretty much all of those fit well. Good practical skills, we would definitely say not at the beginning of the series, (laughs) but maybe by the end, yeah. I think he is pretty loyal because I think a lot of people point to him as potentially being kind of a Hufflepuff too. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he did want to be in Hufflepuff and then supportive, reliable, and patient are really true strengths, I think, for him. And then weaknesses, humble and shy, take things too personally, rep- repress their feelings, overload themselves, reluctant to change, and too altruistic. I definitely see the humble and shy and maybe taking things too personally because he's always getting ragged on. I, can't, I mean, I can't imagine that's very easy. I don't know about the other ones, but I overall, I think, I feel like I see it fitting pretty well, but I also really identify with this personality type myself, and I never really thought of myself as identifying with Neville that much, so I don't know, maybe I have some self, uh, self-reflection self to do there. Yeah, maybe. I, I really like Neville as a character. I feel like immediately after Seven, he was kind of like everybody's new favorite character like oh my god Neville yes and I think that I was kind of swept up in that he was kind of always my male favorite character like I have different categories so female like student male Mm. adult you know trio I feel like he's always been kind of my favorite male character really what about Fred George well, Fred and George is a newfound love of mine like I think that they've overtook Neville that's why I was kind of trying to say Neville like I feel like is got a lot of hype and like deservingly he got hype for it but I feel like he's a good character but he was just an amazing character post seven and yeah because of events that happened in that I mean and, like I it's definitely deserving but I think you can get like swept up into that hype you know what I mean and I think before seven he was always the one people ragged on so it's kind of yeah. like he ends up coming it's basically out like even the in the opposite end. of Snape yeah yeah and I mean I'm all for, like, characters growing and changing and, like, being unexpectedly brave or unexpectedly heroic, but I don't think that should change your opinion. Like, this is more speaking towards Snape than Neville, but, like, hey, there's there's seven and a half other books of material that, like, matter. Six and a half, yeah. Yeah, sorry, six For and Neville, half. it's just him being kind of the laughing stock, but for Snape, yeah. it's him being a terrible person. True. So I'm going to go into a little bit of Neville's childhood and indirectly kind of quickly how he also fits the prophecy because it's pretty straightforward. So his parents, as Audrey mentioned earlier, are Frank and Alice Longbottom. So Frank is from where like the Longbottom name comes from, came, comes from, comes from an old purebud, pureblood family. And they're a part of the sacred 28, which is the 28 oldest, purest lines of family that we have in the wizarding world. And JK Rowling like did a writing about them on Pottermore. If you're interested, go check it out. It's really cool. Kind of to see the ones that made it into the series. And then there are a couple names that are either just like mentioned in passing or aren't even really mentioned at all, but are a part of this world that JK created. And then Alice's middle name was Folly, um, F-A-W-L-E. 
L-E-Y, sorry. And she was also a pureblood. Then Neville was born at the end of July, July 30th, just hours before Harry Potter to his parents, Frank and Alice Longbottom. Yeah, and just when you were talking about the Longbottom name, that reminded me something that we probably should have talked about in the fact file. But Neville was part of the original 40, which is JK's like first 40 names that she wrote down for just students' names that she was going to use, which is pretty much almost all of the student names that we hear of in Harry's year. But Neville was originally, if you look at the first, they have the first 40 on Pottermore, or the original 40 on Pottermore. And um, Neville, you can see it's noted that he was rewritten later in ink. And before he had been crossed out and had been side bottom comma Neville. So Hmm. I like long bottom better, but I think that's just familiarity. Yeah. Because, I mean, long bottom is kind of a silly last name anyways so yeah so like I mentioned he was born at the end of July so that fits the prophecy as the seventh month dies like I said he was born just hours before Harry and his parents Frank and Alice Longbottom were gifted orders and parts of the part of the order of the phoenix and had thrice defied Lord Voldemort which was like the other criteria in the prophecy and this is where I get to some questioning of the series and there may or may not be answers to these questions as a whole well just like how things turned out so first off why did Voldemort choose Neville if there was like a 50 50 shot Dumbledore does kind of give an explanation to this saying like he picked the half-blood like a reflection of himself not the pure blood but Neville also fit the prophecy so like I don't know if I buy it. Like, Dumbledore has been spot on and everything he's guessed, but I think that's, like, a pretty flimsy explanation. And then, also, all the information I could find is that, like, Harry and his family were under protection pre the attack. But nobody knew who Voldemort had chosen until the attack, question mark? Or, no, Snape comes and tells Dumbledore. Never mind. That's incorrect. But I was wondering if, like they were under protection beforehand, whether they were, like, both under protection, and then when Voldemort made the decision, like, they just went to the Potters. So I was just, like, kind of wondering if they just never protected Frank and Alice Longbottom when they had just an equal shot of being the chosen one, in quotation marks, because it was their child. But anyway, you know what I, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I totally know what you're saying. I have a one potential... No, I've, I just have two questions. <laughs> so no answers. The first is that... Do we, do we know for sure that Voldemort knew that Neville was another option? That was another one of my questions, is did he even know that Neville because was another option? I'm thinking of the movie, which is, of course, potentially wrong, yeah. but I think in the flashback, Snape's, Snape's memories after he died in the Pensieve... I think Dumbledore says to Snape, like, you know, there's another one. And and yeah. Snape's like, yeah, he knows, but he's chosen the Potter boy or something yeah. like that. Um, so I, I don't know if that's canon. So I wonder maybe Voldemort only knew about Harry. I don't know. That seems weird, though. Yeah, because, I mean, if it, I feel like there has to be a pretty limited amount of people that have thrice defied Voldemort himself. Yeah. And, you know like, I mean? the so wizarding like, population is small. Yeah, so, like, they definitely had to be on his radar whether or not he knew that they also had a child hours before Harry was born is another thing. Right. My other question is when... Because they were... The Longbottoms were tortured after Voldemort fell. Correct. Okay, so that would explain they may have had protection and then when... Voldemort. Voldemort, quote, died, but didn't die. They stopped protecting them. I feel like I, I don't know if this was like a Tumblr thing or I don't really know a fan post or something, but for some reason, I feel like I like have this headcanon that Mad-Eye Moody was protecting the Longbottoms. I mean, like there is definitely, there could be a precedent for that because we do know that in the books, Moody is the one who gives Harry the the picture of the original Mm -hmm. Order of the Phoenix, and he does talk about Frank and Alice Longbottom yeah. in it. I don't remember whether maybe that's, that's where I got that from. Yeah, so like maybe you just like 
connected those two things in a way. Also, I don't know who, because you know how they were, the the Bellatrix and co who tortured the Longbottoms, they were caught doing it, right? Because that's mentioned because they say that Barty Kirch Jr. was literally caught with Death Eaters. It wasn't like a after the fact thing. They were either caught there or like leaving the scene. Yeah, so I wonder maybe... Maybe I'm thinking Moody was the one who caught them, which would be totally feasible since he was, like, one of the dominant orers at the time. Yeah. So, (laughs) basically, that segment was just us asking questions. So, please answer them. We got an email (laughs) from a fan the other day. Yes. Or, I don't know, a fan, a listener. (laughs) And so, thank you for that. And please, like, if we say something that you question or you have answers to our question we're not experts by any means yeah the email was like part kind of correcting us but part also like asking if we had more information about something and we're always willing to share more information that's why we started this podcast and we're always open to being corrected because when I go back and listen to these podcasts I'm like oh my god that's not true Katie why did you (laughs) say that it's too late to do anything about it so I know that we do make mistakes but yes getting back to Neville Next in his life, he was born, his parents died, sorry, his parents did not die. His parents were tortured into insanity by Rebastian, Rodolphus, Bellatrix Lestrange, and Barty Crouch Jr., which I think is, if I, like, think about this situation in a way that it doesn't really involve the Longbottoms, that's, like, a really weird group of people because it's Bellatrix, her brother, her husband, and then this random, like, 18-year-old boy. Well, do you think Barty Coach Jr. kind of got, like, roped into the cool kids of the Death Eaters? He was, like, their tag-along? Yeah, either that or he was, like, trying to force his way in with the in yeah. crowd and, like, hey, let's go do this really terrible thing, but, like, it will be fun to us, kind of. Like, uh, it just you know makes what me I mean? so sick. Yeah, and so they they were tortured using the Cruciatus curse and were checked into St. Mungo's permanently for the rest of their life and don't really recognize Neville when he comes around, like definitely cannot be parents to him, so his grandmother takes him in. But the the rapper, she gives him rapper, oh my god. Okay, there's... I was going to mention this later, but you just brought it up, so I'm going to say it now. There's, like, this really, really sad, heartbreaking fan theory, fan story, whatever, that I've, like, seen. I'm sure a lot of people have, because it's a very popular one, but, like, that Neville, like, goes to his parents to be like, hey, like, parents, (laughs) hey, mom and dad, I'm going to propose to this girl, Hannah Abbott, blah, 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 and, like, he doesn't think that they understand him, but then, like, she reaches in and, like, puts the, like, her wedding ring in his hand, because he was expecting a gum wrapper, but it was hooray. Oh my god. Just really heartbreaking. I'm gonna cry. Katie's like, not gonna cry because she never cries, but I'm really close to tears right now. Okay. I cry. I cry when other, like, I cry more through, like, indirect emotions than, like, my emotions because I don't have them. Hey, you had emotions the time I saw you cry. The time I saw you cry. I assume that's when we uh, departed ways and speeded. The last time we saw each other. In person, yeah. It's been a while. We've done this entire podcast since then. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. That's true. Um, Yes, getting back to Neville again. Wow, there might be some serious editing going on in this episode. So Neville, right after he was born, showed his first sign of magic, which is really unusual because it was really early on. But so he was a baby just born like his mother is still like on her birthing bed. I don't know if that's a thing, but like the midwife is there hours post birth and he like snuggled a little bit tighter in his blanket so it swallowed him more comfortably (laughs) so he like moved the blanket so he was more comfortable and the midwife noticed but had just assumed that like Frank Longbottom had come around and made his son a little bit more comfy but it was really just Neville baby Neville using his magic. Do wizards and witches have their babies at muggle hospitals? I feel like no. Because when we, when Arthur and Molly are like in St. Mungo's, they're talking about, oh my god, stitches, like this weird muggle thing. You know what I mean? It just seems so much more foreign to them than if they had experience with muggle hospitals. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. If we're going into labor, because I mean, wizards and witches live in London, like that's where Sirius live. What if you're going into labor, like... When you're just out walking the streets, people are probably going to be like, let me call an ambulance, get you to a hospital kind of thing. 
So I don't know. I feel like it might have happened before, but I also feel like wizards definitely have an easier way to give birth than they like probably have way. like potions that are way better painkillers. Yeah, or just like Asio the baby, it's like easy Asio newborn. Awesome. <laughs> so yeah, so he first showed his signs of magic when he was a really little baby, but nobody noticed. The midwife semi-noticed, and this is from J.K.'s writing about magic in children, I think. It's in a writing by J.K. I don't remember which one. (laughs) I promise. And then, so, throughout his life, his grandmother was very worried that he was not showing signs of magic. Because when it became time that around maybe like 6, 7, 8, 9, like where people tend to start to show like bigger signs of magic, Neville was not doing that. And so his family started to get really worried. Um, his grandmother in particular, Augusta, but also his other family members, namely Uncle Algie. So one time when his family was just like getting together, having a fun time, Uncle Algie decides to hold Neville by his ankles outside of a window to try and like force magic to come out. And then somebody offers him lemon meringue and is like, oh, yes, lemon meringue, and drops his nephew out the window. Luckily, Neville bounced, and so he did show signs of magic, and they were all very relieved and happy that he showed signs of magic, which I feel like they should have been relieved and happy that he didn't, I don't know, die. <laughs> but yeah. So that's, uh, yeah, that's Neville's childhood. <laughs> like, Not the warmest I, of childhoods. Augusta is kind of like a polarizing character because she's very stern and very cold with Neville, I feel like. I can't imagine Neville's childhood is very, like, warm and Mm -hmm. cuddly and loving. But then, like, at the end, when she finally, like, is proud of Neville, and, like, this is kind of problematic in itself that she, like, doesn't really show his her love and affection for him until he is, quote, worthy Mm -hmm. in, like, her eyes. Mm -hmm. But then she's all, like, where's my grandson? Of course he's fighting, like, Death Eaters. Like, let me go join him, like, in the battle of the Battle of Hogwarts. And so that's supposed to be, like, aw. But it's also just because... Neville is worthy in her eyes now and we even see it from McGonagall's perspective one time where Neville is arguing with her I believe this is in sixth year when they're redoing their schedules after the OWLs and he's like no I have to take charms like my grandmother says it's a must and she's like well just because your grandma or no he like wants to take something and no she I think she, his to. grandmother didn't want him to take charms because she said it was like useless or something because she didn't get yeah. an OWL. Yeah, and then McGonagall's like, well, just because your grandmother didn't get an OWL on charms doesn't mean it's useless magic. I'm putting you down for charms. Done. Yeah. Um, which is like an awesome moment by McGonagall where she's basically being like a better a better parent figure for him than his grandmother who raised him. Yeah. So, yeah. She's, she's, a, she's a character. Also, her wardrobe is... It's what the, it's what Snape Snape ends up wearing. Yeah, but you, like, who wears a hat with like a vulture yeah. on their hat? Like, well, maybe it's wizarding fashion, fashion, witch fashion, and a bright red pocketbook. It was in Witch Weekly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so now I'm gonna talk about why Neville is a Gryffindor because I feel like for the first six books of the series, we are all like, why the heck is Neville a Gryffindor? I'm going to edit that comment and say the first four books of the series. Okay, that's fair. Order of the Phoenix. Yeah, no, that's he, fair. That's he definitely like, comes into yeah. his own. And it's definitely like towards the end of Order of the Phoenix because even in the DA, he's struggling to right. do Expelliarmus for a really long time. But then I think the time that it kind of settled the debate was book seven, pulling the sword of Gryffindor. For sure, for sure. Because the only other person we've seen do that is Harry. Yeah. Um, but of course, it's still kind of a debate. I think people still kind of question it. So that's why we're going to talk about it. So Neville is, of course, a different kind of bravery than Harry. I think Harry is your classic brave character who just charges off into battle and faces danger to save people and has this hero complex, like very classic Gryffindor, kind of stereotypical Gryffindor. Neville, I think, is still really brave. It's just not in your face like Harry's bravery. Um, So now I'm going to talk about why he's brave. (laughs) So his childhood, I think Katie was just talking about this, but I think he definitely, you could say, had a, a tough childhood. I mean, I don't think it was easy, 
Um, and I think a lot of the times we see people that grew up with not the best of childhoods end up being some of the most brave, the bravest people we know. Um, so because his parents were in that state, he had to see them from a very early age. He probably had to learn how to go into St. Mungo's and visit them and know how to face that. And I think that is a terribly frightening thing for anyone, much less, a, a young kid. So I think that probably had to make him very brave. And like Katie was saying, he was raised by like a wizarding family, unlike Harry, and they did love him. They just didn't really show it. Um, so it, it's better than Harry being raised by the Dursleys, but I think you could argue that um, even ignoring the situation with his parents being so terrible, like his childhood was still probably pretty traumatic because he was, I think, constantly probably treated poorly. We had that example with him hanging out the window and just the fact that he was never really shown affection, I think kind of had to make him make him be brave on his own. You know, he couldn't really rely on his family and guardians. So then in the series, we do get a number of examples of him being brave in the, at the end of Sorcerer's Stone, he stands up to the trio and we get this amazing Dumbledore quote at the end of the year feast where he says, there are all kinds of courage. It takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to our enemies, but just as much to stand up to our friends. And I would even argue sometimes it takes more to stand up to your friends. And so I think I love that Dumbledore quote and I think that's kind of the first time that Neville really has a shining moment of bravery. And then in Prisoner of Azkaban and the Bogart lesson, we learn that his worst fear is Snape. And so I was kind of thinking about this, and Katie's going to talk about this later with her section on Neville and Snape, but that means that every single day, or however often they have potions, but kind of every single day, because they interact with Snape. Which is unclear, Snape. because if you go back and watch, listen to my Hufflepuff episode, yeah, the schedule is all over the place. Right. So uh, anyway, every single day, because Snape's like around for possible confrontation every single day at school, a place that's supposed to be safe and in class, he had to face his worst fear in the world. Imagine your worst fear in the world and imagine having to face that every single day. Like it's a miracle he didn't drop out. And like school in general could not have been easy for him. He was not the best student for a very long time. He was the odd one out in the Gryffindor boys, as we see like Harry and Ron were best friends. Dean and Seamus were best friends. Neville didn't really have anyone. And he's generally just teased and made fun of, and he's always forgetting things. He's such an easy target. And I just, I think a lot of kids, after they've grown up, kind of reflect and realize how brave they were. Um, like if they had been bullied during school and realize how brave that they actually were during that time, I don't think you realize it in the moment, I think because you feel like you're in constant fear. But to face that every day, I just think is one of the bravest things. It's like, it's like a, it's an everyday kind of bravery. It's not a charging into battle like Harry does. It's an everyday bravery. And like at the point that we know that's his worst fear in Prisoner of Azkaban, like he's done that for what, whatever, two and a half or um, three years, at least two full years. So it's not like he's like become used to it. It's like, it's getting worse. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> little rant over. Then we next kind of see him being really brave when he joins Dumbledore's army and is super invested in it. And I think this is not just like a bravery thing as far as Gryffindor. I feel like it's a very Gryffindor trait. Like he's doing the good fight type thing. And then for bravery at the end of Order of the Phoenix, he goes into literal battle with the rest of the golden slash silver trio against real adults, like full-size wizards including the woman who tortured his parents when he was like just starting to come to become proficient at defense against the dark arts fun fact about that i believe in this scene where they film this in the movie like helena bottom card like, sticks her wand in neville's ear and i think she like ruptured his eardrum or something like actually like, physically hurt matthew lewis's ear jesus <laughs> don't mess with helena bottom card guys <laughs> So then in sixth year, he fights in the Battle of the Astronomy Tower. So again, he's part of Dumbledore's army. He does fight in that battle, right? Yes. Okay. 
And then he, in seventh year, some of his greatest brave moments were when he reorganized Dumbledore's army and kind of took charge against the Caros, setting up in the room of requirement and whatnot. And then the Battle of Hogwarts, he's the first to stand up to Voldemort and all the Death Eaters when everyone thinks that Harry is dead. And he pulls the sword of Gryffindor out of the hat and he kills Nagini. So... I think we often think about him pulling the sword of Gryffindor and killing Nagini as like the really brave moments, but I think it's, I think it's the being the first to stand up and be like, yeah, Harry was great, but we're not going to stop fighting. And that's just, I, I, out of all of the Gryffindors that were there when Voldemort and the Death Eaters walked up, like Neville was the one to stand up. Yeah. I saw a funny meme about this the other day. It's like picture of Neville and like, yeah, Harry's like Harry's dead but like we're still gonna continue fighting on and it like cuts the hair and he's like wow Neville I'm right here (laughs) (laughs) that was really funny (laughs) so then just to start wrapping this up this section up we do have to remember that your house is based on what you value so even though I went on this whole rant about how brave Neville actually is I think we talk we always talk about how what you value is actually what your house is supposed to be and I think what you value is often heavily influenced by who raised you. For example, the Weasleys raise their kids to all value bravery. So even though we see a lot of tr- other traits in them, I think it makes sense that they're all Gryffindors. So it totally makes sense that Neville's grandmother would raise him to value bravery above all else because throughout his childhood, she kind of idolizes Neville's parents, particularly her son, Frank, because they were some of the bravest Aurors and members of the Order of the Phoenix for the first Wizarding War, and she's so proud of them, which it makes sense. And he grows up essentially in his father's shadow. I mean, he's literally given his father's wand. And so he must really admire his parents' bravery because Augusta, his grandmother, taught him to. And I think maybe that was one of the best things she did for him, even though it came across in the wrong way where it was like he wasn't getting the love because he wasn't his parents. I think she taught him to value bravery a lot. And then finally, he didn't, we know that he didn't want to be a Gryffindor, that he asked the hat to put him in Hufflepuff. So that shows that he really just grew into his bravery, which is really, really cool. And the hat ended up being right, in my opinion. And then there's just a Pottermore feature, which I'm not going to go into because I think it's a lot of the things I already hit on. But if you want to look at it, maybe we'll post it. It's the six reasons Neville is as brave as Harry. Yeah, so now I'm going to talk a little bit about Snape and Neville's relationship throughout this series that kind of like Audrey alluded to earlier. So I just, so I looked up Neville on the wiki and just like command F Snape and went through all the instances that were mentioned there. So I'm sure there are many, many more, but these are the ones that I remembered as well as those that were on the his wiki page. So the first one they have is during the Chamber of Secrets at the Dueling Club, Snape says that Neville has trouble with even the most basic of spells and will send Jay Finch to the hospital in a matchbox. And Jay so Finch, I think Finch around. <laughs> yeah, Jay Finch finching around. I think that this can be like mis- misremembered as being a dig at Ron because in the movie this line is directed towards Ron as opposed to Neville. But it's actually Snape talking about Neville. And then later in The Prisoner of Azkaban, Snape tells Lupin, possibly no one's warned you, Lupin, but this class contains Neville Longbottom. I would advise you not to entrust him with anything difficult. Uh. And so Snape tells Lupin this. And it's just, that's so rude. All of these instances are not only to like Neville's face, but neville with his peers as well like it just has to be humiliating for him even Mm -hmm. though even if people understand what a jackass snape is and how he's just rude and mean all the time still like having these things said about you in front of your peers has Mm -hmm. to be just humiliating also in prisoner of azkaban snape punishes neville for getting his shrinking solution wrong it like turns the wrong color and so snape is like well how about we test this potion on your toad at the end of this class and then hermione helps him through that class by like whispering the directions to him so neville ends up succeeding and they still give the potion to trevor but it all works out okay but that's like not an okay thing to do snape you can't just threaten to like and i know that snape has magic and could probably like 
we do undo anything that Neville's potion does, mm. but still, that's like gotta mess with your mind. One, I can't imagine Snape actually undoing it, you know? That yeah. would be like too merciful of him. Two, I really like how this paints Hermione because I think a lot of the time the trio a little bit joins in with the like rolling their eyes at Neville, but this shows that Hermione like. It does actually care about him, you know? Yeah, like, they might join in on the making fun of him for always forgetting about the trick step and, like, getting stuck into it. But, like, push comes to shove, they're not yeah. going to be rude to him, you know? Right. It's kind of like this all-in-good-fun, whether that's okay or not, but it's not to be mean. Right. Where they're coming from, you know? And then, you you already talked about this, but Neville's bugger is Snape, so, like, that has great implications on his greatest fear of being one of his teachers. Moving on. But then, so Neville pretends and makes the bug art wear his grandmother's clothes. And so the whole school starts to kind of make fun of Snape because of this. And then Snape starts to treat Neville even worse after this. And then just a popular theory on the internet, possibly like explaining why Snape was so mean to Neville, is that Snape... Snape knows that Neville could have been the one that mm. Voldemort chose, but he chooses Harry, thus getting Lily involved, where if he had just chosen Neville, hey, Neville would just be dead, and, like, he wouldn't have a care in the world then. He would still be a Death Eater, which, first off, I think this theory, I don't, I don't buy it. I think Neville, or I think Snape is just rude and saw Neville as an easy target to bully. And two... I don't think this theory makes it any better. Because, <laughs> yeah. like I said, he's literally just wishing that Neville had died yeah. so that, like, his high school crush was still alive and he would still be a Death Eater. That doesn't make it any better. Sorry. I just remembered this. I think I screenshotted and sent this to you. Or I, like, saw this post. And it's a Tumblr post. It says, just remember that had Voldemort picked Neville to kill instead of Harry, and Neville was the boy who lived, slash the chosen one, if Neville had that lightning bolt scar, Severus Snape would still be a Death Eater. It's not like he thought being a Death Eater was wrong. It wasn't until something directly affected him did he reconsider, and I don't know about you, but that is not my definition of bravery in the slightest. Retweet. (laughs) Yeah, basically that, like I said, first off, I don't really buy this theory I can kind of see where they're coming from. I think that's giving Snape entirely too much credit. And number two, even if this theory is correct, it doesn't make Snape a better person, nor does it justify his bullying of Neville. Right. Nothing justifies a teacher bullying a student. Even the whole theories of, like, Snape had to treat Harry and the Gryffindors that badly because what would, like, what would Malfoy, Draco would tell his dad and then, you know, like he would know that Snape was a double agent. That's bullshit because there's... He didn't... It's not like he either bullies them or they're his favorite students. Like, he could just be indifferent and cold, but not a literal bully. Yeah. Just... Anyway, we're... There's, like, connecting connecting to that theory, there's also the theory that, like, he bullies Hermione because Hermione reminds him so much of Lily... Oh, yeah. She's like, she's so yeah. smart, whatever. Also, don't buy it. I think it's, I literally think it's just people trying to, like, come up with excuses and reasons that Snape was a mean person instead of just accepting that he was a mean person who was on the good side of the fight. All right, so now I'm going to talk about Neville's importance. And this segment is entirely based off of this, I guess it's kind of a fan theory. It's basically just a fan opinion And it's this article called Neville Longbottom is the most important person in Harry Potter and here's why. It was written by Emily Asher Perrin and it was, it's on Tor, T-O-R, I don't know what that website is. We'll definitely post the link to this when this episode comes out. So check our Twitter for that. So basically what the author of this article kind of takes you through is that 
JK parallels Harry's generation to the Marauder generation in pretty much all of the major characters of the two generations. So you have Harry is very obviously James. Ron is kind of the serious type character who's the snarky and fun one and just kind of likes to have a good time. Hermione can be compared to Lupin because she's very bookish and kind of just rolls her eyes at what Harry and Ron are doing a lot of the time. Ginny is a lot like Lily, which is kind of weird to think about. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously that you have the physical appearance, but also the sassy, don't take your bullshit kind of, that's, I think, what makes like James and Harry respectively fall for them, which I actually really liked that comparison. And then Draco is a Snape type character. This may seem a little bit more forced, but the quote from the author, I'm just going to read that because I think she put it well. As a natural foil to Harry pretentious, possessed of the frailest ego, and also a deeper sense of right and wrong when it counts. So I think we see, I'd never thought of this comparison, but we see like Draco and Snape being a little bit similar as in they're the, the, the rival to Harry and James in school, and then having that frail ego and also kind of coming out on the good side in the end, in the long run, which I think is not necessarily a given you know, for either of their characters, but that's where they do end up. And then rounding this all out and bringing us back to our episode is that Neville would be the Peter equivalent. So you might be rolling your eyes or being like, what are you talking about? Because that's what I was like when I got to the end of that paragraph. But just hold on and let me let me take you through what Emily Asher Perrin told me. <laughs> So, um, when we're talking about Neville and Peter, they're both the pureblood who was not really respected by everyone else, their students and also their teachers. I mean, McGonagall calls, talking about Peter Pettigrew says, oh, like he was the foolish boy that was always following Harry, or that was always following James and Sirius. And we often see Neville kind of painted as the fool. But if you think about it, Outside of the trio, Neville was kind of the one to know the most of Harry's secrets, and he had the ability to turn against him and ruin it all, which outside of Sirius and Lupin, Peter was the one that had that that inside to James and Lily. They're both Neville and Peter are easy to pick on. And Neville does get picked on, especially when the trio aren't around to defend him. But he also gets picked on, like, teased by the trio a little bit, which I think you can parallel to how James and Sirius, they weren't always the greatest to Peter. You know, they kind of let him tag along, but they weren't, he wasn't one of them fully, which is kind of where we see Neville fall, is like, if the trio's around, they might defend Neville from, say, Snape, but they're not they're not gonna be super inclusive and nice to Neville all the time. So you have all these kind of surface level similarities, similarities in where they fall in the social status, I think, both Neville and Peter Pettigrew. But the key thing here is that while Neville fills many of the same roles as Pettigrew, he makes the hard choices where Peter Pettigrew made the easy ones. And I think this is a theme throughout the series is making the hard choice, making the right choice when it's not the easy one. And this makes all the difference between the generations, between the two wars, and between Neville and Peter. So now I'm just going to read two paragraphs from from this article because I thought that they summed it up really, really well. So Peter Pettigrew let his weakness carry through life. He hero-worshipped James and Sirius, then simply transferred their sen- that sensibility to Voldemort. He is the ultimate follower. He moves to what he perceives as the strongest single voice in the room, which is the reason why Peter doesn't seem to lose much sleep over his decisions. While he's aware that he ha- what he has done is wrong, his basic excuse for everything is, but you know who had so much power, there was no other choice that makes sense. Sirius says that he would have rather he would have died rather than betray Lily and James the way Peter did. But the real point to take away is that dying was never the only option. If Peter had worked a little harder, relied less on the protection of others, believed in the power of his friendships and fam- family, he ne- need never have made those choices in the first place. Continuing on to talk about Neville. 
This is why Neville's first act of heroism is a perfect juxtaposition to Peter's failings when he stands up to Harry, Ron, and Hermione in the Philosopher's Stone. Dumbledore recognizes it as such and rewards him for his body bind with the final points needed to win Gryffindor the House Cup. He makes it Neville's personal victory by announcing him last. You have to surmise that Dumbledore sees how history might repeat itself and is relieved to see Neville going down a different road. Where Peter spent his life in the shadow of his friends, remembered even by professors as little more than a sycophant, recall that Professor McGonagall thinks of him primarily as that boy who trailed after James and Sirius, Neville steps away from that position immediately and shows everyone that while he may be meek, he's no one to mess around with. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was extremely well worded, kind of showing where Neville, Neville made the right choices. Another note that the author brings up about Neville's importance is that she talks about him as a, a quote, keeper of hope, which I really thought rang true because he's always the one that's standing up for Harry. He's always, he's always the first to kind of jump on his Harry's side and get involved in the DA and want the DA to continue and reorganize it in the seventh year. And I think he, and we see that again with, um, in the Battle of Hogwarts, he's the, he keeps the hope even when they think Harry's gone. He still realizes that the fight isn't done. And speaking of this, at the end, Neville is given the chance to do what Peter did and join Voldemort. When he stands up, Voldemort says, oh, just come over to the Death Eaters. Like, you may be stupid, but like, we'll have you on our side. But instead, he's brave, and Peter wasn't brave. And Neville stands up to Voldemort and he pulls the sword of that of the hat and he kills Nagini. And he really just solidifies the fact that he did the right thing where Peter didn't. So now I'm getting to the end of this segment, don't worry. <laughs> but the I'm just going to read the last paragraph that um, was written in this article. That distinction makes Neville Longbottom the truest of Gryffindors and a surprising balancing point of the entire Harry Potter narrative. Who Peter Pettigrew might have been had he understood that courage wasn't about blind action, but about doing what was needed even if no one ever asked. In a world of leaders and followers, there are some who don't attempt to fit either mold, and it is those distinct few who really determine the future of us all. That is what Neville Longbottom can teach us. And I just really liked this kind of this fan theory because I think it it makes you appreciate Neville for his character more holistically, more so than just what he did in the final battle. And I also think it really brings out a lot of the important things that this series, I think, was trying to teach so many people about making the hard choices. Yeah, I really like that. I don't know if it's one that necessarily, like, jk included on purpose yeah but i think it's a really cool deep dive and deep read into the series as how neville can clearly parallel peter pettigrew it's very interesting and we've spoken a lot about neville killing nagini i just want to remind everybody that nagini was a woman at (laughs) one point and so when i was like googling stuff about neville like a couple of the articles were like how jk rowling made neville a murderer yikes (laughs) So, well, that's interesting. He killed her as a horcrux. Yeah, I definitely don't think it equates, but it's still kind of weird to it think about. It is weird to think about, yeah. And I know we mentioned the Crimes of Granola episodes, but... So, moving on to the Where Are They Now section. Neville went on to join Harry and Ron as Aurors for the new government that Kingsley was establishing directly after the Battle of Hogwarts. And then, not long after that, is when he took up his post as Professor of Herbology at Hogwarts. He married Hannah Abbott, and so the wiki had some really interesting theories slash filling in the blanks between their relationship, because this is the one of the few that we know both people involved, but they were not involved with each other from what we see in the series. So, like, we know Jamie Hare, but they were dating the series. Like, Ron and Hermione, they were dating the series. Okay, but they could have been... You don't know what they were doing in Greenhouse 3. Yeah, this is what that's talking about, and possibly, like how their relationship could have started. So like I said, we don't really see them interact much, even if at all, throughout the series. There are definitely instances where they're together, and this is from Harry's perspective, so maybe he just wasn't very good at picking up cues. Definitely. Before you get into Neville and Hannah, I just want to say that Neville and Dean have something in common, and that they both went on dates with Ginny before Harry did. 
That is true. Because Neville and Ginny go to so the Yule Ball together, and it's really, really cute. Because Neville tries so hard, and Ginny just is happy to go with him. And that scene in the movie where he's, like, still dancing. I know. I love it. I love it. So, back to Hannah. His longtime love, not just his Yule Ball love. So, we know that they were in the GA together, so they could have become friends then. Hannah Abbott does lose her mother in the six years, so this posited, the wiki posited that maybe Neville had helped her through that because he can kind of sympathize with that, whether or not it was right afterwards, or this could help them build their relationship when they first did start dating, that Neville had this experience in something that she also had experience in, so they were able to like sympathize with each other and really connect with each other based on their shared experience. We also do know that Gryffindor shared her biology with Hufflepuffs more than once, if not throughout all of the years of Hogwarts so we know that Neville Herbology was his best class so he might have been maybe like a little bit more confident in that class he knew what he was doing so he might have been confident enough to go out and speak with Hufflepuffs and girl Hufflepuffs and Hannah Abbott so those are just some like possible theories of how their relationship gets got started if it if it did get started at Hogwarts it might have gotten started afterwards you know post Battle of Hogwarts. We don't really know. But we do know that Hannah Abbott became the landlady at the Leaky Cauldron and Neville eventually moved in and lived above the pub with her. And then we also know that, or the wiki says, that at one point she retrained and studied to become a healer and then applied to be the healer at Hogwarts so that they, her and Neville could be closer. But we don't know whether this pans out because Madame Pomfrey was still there as the healer in 2020 because she, like, resets a broken bone of Albus Severus's and Cursed Child. And there's no source attached to her applying to become the healer at Hogwarts, so I don't know the validity of that claim. Are you concerned about the fact that your favorite Harry Potter characters go to a magic school that doesn't teach them practical skills like basic arithmetic or what an element is? Did you go to a magic school that didn't teach you practical skills like basic arithmetic or what an element is? If any of the above applies to you, you should check out our podcast. That's Not How Science Works, hosted by myself and my truly awesome co-host, Nicole. In our podcast, Caitlin and I discuss the science in different pieces of media, such as movies or TV shows, and dissect whether it's good, bad, or just plain ridiculous. Often, we also have special guests who help us rant about bad science and their areas of expertise. We release new episodes every other Monday, and you can find us wherever you usually download your podcasts. We like to think of this as a podcast for the science curious. So whether you're a practicing scientist or a wizard who just graduated high school with no practical life skills, we'd love for you to listen in. You can also find out more by going to our website, thatsnotscience.com, or by looking us up on Twitter at TNHSWpod. We hope you give us a listen. Now back to your regularly scheduled Potterheads, Katie and Audrey. Time for our pop quiz. So today's question is a very Neville question because like I mentioned in the first mention, most of what we hear about him for the first couple chapters that he's in is, wow, he's the boy who lost his toad. So the question today is, what kind of pet would you bring to Hogwarts? I would definitely have an owl, which I think most people say. I think I, and I fall into the trap where I usually say snowy owl on, oh on the Pottermore quiz. Mostly because I don't really know what the other owls are. Like, I know what, like, a tawny owl is, and clearly a snowy owl is cooler. You know, like, there's a reason Hedwig is a snowy owl. But also because... None of the other options are really great. I've always been underwhelmed with the pets in the wizarding world. I hate cats. I don't want a toad. I don't want a rat like Scabbers. I don't want a tarantula like Lee Jordan. You know, there aren't very many great options. And I don't love birds either. But owls are useful and Hedwig's cool. (laughs) So ideally I would have Hedwig. No, ideally I would have a dog. Yeah, I would have Padfoot. So this question raises a couple questions in itself. First off, we know that on the packing list it says owl, cat, or toad. But you just listed way more than those three animals. And we see in the 17 years later that Albus has, Albus Severus has a freaking ferret, or James, James might have the ferret. One of them has a ferret. Right. So it's like, 
how lenient are these rules if you can and I'm pretty sure Jenny brings her pygmy puff which would be my answer to the question so it's like why even list the three if it's not like why don't they just say like bring a pet you know what I mean do you think those rules are just for first years well but Ron brings his rat first year does he yeah Mm, I don't remember that oh yeah he does also it's funny that one of the potter boys ends up with a ferret because of the whole mouthful. <laughs> maybe also, that they just did that in the movie for that. On Wizards Unite, where, you know, how you save all the, the, Slytherin, the student. Slytherin student is becoming a ferret. Yeah. Yeah. Also, speaking of snowy owls, I'm like 98% sure I did like a class project on snowy owls <laughs> when I was in elementary <laughs> school solely because of Harry Potter. And in case anybody's wondering, for the Pottermore quiz where you're only limited to cats, owls, and toads, cats really scare me, so I don't, br- I never pick a cat. Toads like seem kind of boring. And I normally pick like a barn owl, I think, or Those a tiny so owl. Boring. Well, I don't want to be basic and choose a snowy owl, and screech owls kind of scary. Yeah, me. same. So, oh, but I would want an owl like pig. Owls in general, okay, actually, scop scopes or scops owls, the owls that are used for like short distances that are kept in the Hogwarts uh. owlery, are really, really cute. But also, owls are insanely creepy. They're huge and their head, they like their never blink and their head, like move all the way around. Like they're actually really terrifying yeah. in general. So. I'm going to stick with my pygmy puff answer. I'm going to take Padfoot. <laughs> I feel like having a puppy at Hogwarts would just be Bad. way more work than all the other pets. Though. It would also like, be the sad just for the to... dog. Yeah. That's like, I feel like it just wouldn't, I love dogs. I just feel like it wouldn't be really worth it to have That's why Hogwarts. I'm bringing Padfoot because he can just change into a human. That's true. He can take care of himself. Yeah. <laughs> Not weird that my pet is a serious one. Okay, we need to we need to wrap this up. It's Friday night. Woo. So go subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, all of them to download and listen to our episodes. You get one more month of them being released every week. So enjoy Same August, now. and then you're gonna have to have some. Withdrawals from Wizard Studies. Also, please leave us a review. We really appreciate it. Yes. And then if you, there are other outlets where you can tell us how amazing we are. And those are <laughs> Facebook and Instagram. You can find us there at Wizard Studies Podcasts. And then on Twitter as Wizard Studies. And then you can also email us. Like we mentioned earlier, a listener emails us, emailed us the other day, and it literally like makes my day. It made me so happy knowing that. Like I said, last episode or two episodes ago, other people listen besides my mother. So, And our email is wizardstudiespodcast at gmail.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. And remember, just do your best. We'll do the rest. And learn until our brains all rot. Mm-hmm.